Hey everyone, and welcome back to the show. Jessica Stevens here, your host of I Just Blank Now What, the podcast. How is everyone doing today? I hope this Wednesday or whatever day of the week you happen to be listening to this episode is going fantastic. Um, and you're grateful for so many things that are happening in your life and what you got going on. I, I want to take this moment just to, you know, kind of soak up some gratitude and appreciation for all the, all the blessings and all the gifts that we have in our life right now. So today we are having a really, really big conversation on the show. And it is a really important one that I am so grateful my friend Marcus is sharing with me and all of you here. It's a really important one because there are many, many people in this world who are being falsely accused of crimes and the repercussions of that are tragic, especially as a man and a black man living in the United States. This is something that we wanted to shed some light on as to what's going on. So Marcus is a personal friend of myself and the hubs. And when he shared this story with us of what was going on in his life, our, my heart just was, was just breaking. And he asked me if uh, he could come on the show and, and share his story with all of you. And I, it was an instant yes. He is working with an amazing organization to, you know, share information about what goes on in the United, United States judicial system as it relates to being falsely accused. And I wanted to give him an opportunity to, sh to share his story here on the show. So a little bit about Marcus. Professionally, he is a pricing and revenue management consultant with 21 years of experience gained working with four big global airlines and one global airport and a leading tech giant. He dabbles in multiple passions. He is also a commercial pilot, a financial coach, tax and business strategist, and a real estate investor. He also serves as a leader and mentor with his church, volunteers on community boards, and is a huge advocate for social change and giving back to the community, hence the conversation we're having with him today. He also enjoys the outdoors, traveling, flying, biking, the beach, good food, and music, and learning about different cultures and people and their stories. And I am so excited for all of you to get to know Marcus today. So without further ado, let's get to the Now What? Have you ever had a situation happen in your life that you weren't expecting, good or bad, and said to yourself or out loud, oh my gosh, I just fill in the blank, now what? Me too, friend, me too. I've had quite a few actually, and in the moment, I never knew what I was gonna do next. Of course, I had to figure it out, sometimes the hard way, but I did figure it out. So join me and some amazing guests this season as we all share our own, I just blank, now what stories, so we can all learn from their transformational lessons to help us all answer that lifelong and often paralyzing question, now what? Hey friend, did you just think to yourself, I just love this podcast, now what? Well, I hope you do, and if you did, I got the answer. Become a patron and support the show. For just a $5 financial gift a month, you can access episodes early and without ads. 
Plus, you'll be entered to win our monthly Patreon giveaway, like books and courses from our guests and some fun merch. For just a $10 a month contribution, you'll become an all-access patron and also get bonus exclusive content from me and some of our guests. Behind the scenes, Q&A, bonus questions, all of it. So head over to patreon.com backslash I just blank and now what? Or click on the link in the show notes and become a patron today. Well, hello, Marcus. Hey, how's it going, Jess? I'm doing well. I'm so excited for us to finally connect to have this conversation. We've been chatting about you coming on the show for quite a while. So I'm, I'm excited that it's finally happening. No, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm pretty excited myself. Yeah. A little bit nervous. But, A little bit nervous. Yeah. Don't worry. Don't worry. We'll be gentle with you. The audience is very welcoming and understanding when people are coming on here and literally sharing their innermost, deepest secrets or, you know, experiences that they've had that have been truly challenging in their life. So we have a very, very forgiving and gracious audience for you today, I promise. So obviously, I just read your bio to everybody so they know a little bit about you. But I always love for guests to share a little bit about themselves in their own words. Like, what's something that you want people to know about Marcus? Um, hmm, good ask. I mean, there's a, a ton. I I think first and foremost, I like to lead with, hey, you know, I am a lover of Jesus, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and um, that kind of is the, you know, the path of how I try to live my life, and I also love to have fun, you know. Mm-hmm. Pretty easy going, love to travel, love the beach. Yeah, I live in, in Texas right now and it's a challenge because it's like 30 something degrees. You know, of course, you know, you guys living in, in Canada are probably like, huh, that's like shorts weather, <laughs> you know, but that's so cold for us. That's so cold for us. But yeah, it's 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 not mutually exclusive to be, you know, one of faith and, and have fun. Those two things can, can coexist. So I love that about you. And I'm sure there's probably going to be a beach in your near future at some time real soon. So yeah. it's all good. All right. So today we're unpacking a really big story from your life. And this is something that I hope not too many people have personally experienced themselves, but there is a strong possibility that many have and many will, and that is being falsely accused. So your story is, I just got falsely accused, now what? And you're gonna you know, take us back to when this happened to you in your life, who was involved, how it kind of unfolded, and then what your experience was of going through the justice system as somebody who's been falsely accused. So I'm going to shut up. I'm going to let you take us back and share the story because I know you have a lot to to share because there's many elements to this story. So take it away, my friend. No, that's fair. Again, thanks for the opportunity to share. So I want to give a bit of context as to kind of how we got here, right? So I've been married for about seven years. And, you know, there were challenges in the marriage. And um, there was physical abuse, emotional abuse, et cetera. To give some examples, you know, at one point, my my ex actually tried to push me down the stairs, you know, and denied it. So that happened twice in two locations. My response to that was, you know, hey, I'm going to put cameras all over the house, you know, just to kind of document these incidents. And I just started keeping a record of this stuff. So, I mean, 
it was pretty bad. Like death threats, all sorts of craziness. After three years of hoping to like, you know, kind of turn things around and actually have a, a good marriage. I was just like, hey, this is a healthy, this is a no-go. You know, I can't do this much longer. However, you know, she had a kiddo. I'd just fallen in love with a kiddo. And um, if people that know me know that I've always had a heart to be a dad, you know, and that was one of the, the, the great opportunities of and blessings of being in this relationship. So I stuck around because of the kiddo and just kind of wanted to be a, a positive impact and presence for her. Mm-hmm. But after a while, I realized, hey, you know, as much as I love this little girl, like, you know, I'm literally self-destructing, basically, if I stay in this relationship. So I started having conversations about, hey, you know, I think we should get divorced. And I'm not seeing any, you know, accepting of responsibility or willingness to go to counseling, that type of stuff. Like, I, I can't do it anymore. So, you know, I guess there were some attempts to change, but, you know, not enough where it was consistent and we could actually, you know, see a path forward. So fast forward, I'm like, okay, well, you know, my ex had immigrated to the States because we were married and I wanted to make sure that whole citizenship process was good for her and for kiddo, right? Because now in splitting, she now has to like, you know, be able to, sustain herself and kiddo. So I wanted to make sure that was done. So I stayed a little bit longer because of that. Two things happened. COVID happened. (laughs) So that slowed down every government process that was happening. And then the other thing was, you know, President Trump showed up and he pretty much wanted to shut down two thirds of immigration. So what was already slow became even slower. So uh, that process actually took maybe two years longer than it should. And when it was finally over, I was just like, okay, well, we've been having this divorce conversation. Now let's do it. So fast forward, you know, the verbiage is that, hey, you know, if you try to divorce me, I'm going to destroy your life. I didn't know what that meant. But, you know, I guess I try, I lean more towards, you know, like seeing the good in people. So I'm not really seeing like how bad something or a situation could get. And you so, probably thought it as a, a release of frustration, something that she was just saying, but not necessarily really meaning of. Correct. Yeah. The, the say and the do, there was to, total disparity in terms of what I thought would have happened versus what actually did happen. You know, mm-hmm. so hence, hence the conversation today. So basically what happens in Texas, Texas is a community property state. Like I said, just giving context here. So that means if you're getting divorced, then it's pretty much a 50-50 split, you know, which is reasonable. And nobody gets married to get divorced. So you go in, you know, fully knowing that this is what's up. But uh, in this situation, what happens in Texas is that there are certain conditions where a person can get more than a 50-50 split. And that's if there's abuse, if there's cruelty, or if there's adultery, Right. So that's how you would lean to get more of the marital estate. But like I said, I know none of this, right? So, so fast forward, I, make, I speak to an attorney you know, about, about the whole divorce thing. And she's like, well, hey, this is pretty easy. You guys do have a lot of stuff. Just come up to our agreement. I'll draft up documentation. You're done. So it's like, all right, sounds straightforward. So I presented that to my ex. And her response was, is that all I'm getting? And I was just like, <laughs> you know, there's not like a, you know, 
pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Like, this is what it is. And I think I was actually pretty generous. I'd offered to, like, pay off all her bills, her house, everything like that. You know, we'd sell the existing house. So she'd be pretty much debt-free and still walk away with some cash, you know, which I thought was fair because, you know, I'm trying to set her up for success, not for failure. Mm-hmm. So fast forward, COVID kind of eases up. She goes to Jamaica, a family member gotten sick. And I was just like, hey, you know, you should probably go be with your family, you know, because it's been like a year and a half, almost two years. You should go and kind of be there for that person. And so went down in February of 21. And what I realized after being in the home with the person for two years, I mean, one, there was no way I was going to have a divorce conversation while locked in the house with this person. Because <laughs> literally, I had to sleep with like one eye open. I mean, it was bad. Like, I stopped eating meals from them because I was just like, I don't know what's in this. <laughs> you know, That's it was how much fear you had for what she could possibly do. Correct. So, and also what had been done before, right? I mean, there are over 12 documented incidents of like, you know, physical abuse, et cetera. And I mean, I was raised never ever to hit women. So, like, you kind of just take it, right? And then to kind of protect privacy. Like, that's not something you go out and share. But I think now with this situation, what I'm trying to, the goal is really to help other men and people to understand that, hey, this stuff can happen to you and you're not alone, mm-hmm. right? So, so fast forward, she goes to Jamaica. I'm in Dallas and I'm just like, wait, the house is calm and peaceful. I don't have to be walking on eggshells, but I have to be looking over my shoulder. I can actually sleep with both eyes closed. (laughs) Toxic energy has dispersed. Yeah. So I was just like, wait, I like this. You know, I can go out and hang out with my friends and it not be an issue. And uh, I can live my life. And I kind of got a glimpse of who I was again. And I was just like, oh man, I'm never giving this up. You know, like I never knew what it was like to kind of be outside of that space. And I was just like, I'm definitely not going back into that space. So I started accelerating the divorce conversations because now it was safe to do so because there was no physical proximity, et cetera. And I was just like, hey, let's get this done. So that was not well received. I think there was a bit of, you know, mourning on on her side and, and regret. But then I think that translated into just what I now look back and call a brilliant divorce strategy. but at the same time, it was also sheer evil. <laughs> so, but yeah, but fast forward, seven months later, she returns to, to Dallas unannounced, right? And all this time, we've been having conversations like, hey, you know, I don't want to disrupt kiddos' education. If you come back to Dallas for sure, there's no relationship. There's nothing here. Like, we're getting divorced. So I don't want kiddo to have to necessarily be affected by that and having to transition schools and being witnessing that. So it's just like, hey, you know, enroll kid in school in Jamaica. And then, you know, we can kind of sort out our differences as adults, you know, without her having to see anything or experience any disruption in her life. Plus, I mean, Jamaican school systems, you know, much better than the States anyway. So it would have been a win. So that was not received and showed up at my door unannounced with kiddo in tow and i mean i had changed locks you know like the entire work so i was like there's no way 
I'm going back into that space. Mm-hmm. But she showed up with Kido. And my dad had died like a week before. And I was kind of still going through that mourning and funeral planning. So I wasn't making 100% wise decisions because I think between school, my father passing away and work, it was just a lot. Mm-hmm. So I Simp- I empathize and I was just like, well, I don't want to leave kid on the side of the street, you know. So you're not I that foolishly, guy. Yeah, I and foolishly. She knew, and she knew you were not that guy. So that was probably pretty strategic on her part. Yeah, she she knew I had a, a soft spot for kiddo, and I think she leveraged that. If she had showed up by herself, yeah, she would have been outside, basically. <laughs> and just being 100% honest there. So I foolishly let her in, and I was just like, hey, you know, this is a really trying time in my life. I don't have the bandwidth, you know, to deal with any drama or anything from you, you know. So, like, you're not supposed to be here, but because you're here, you can stay here under certain conditions, no drama, no stress, etc. And until we figure this stuff out. So we coexisted for a week, you know. And like I said, I'm emotionally elsewhere, so I'm not willing to invest energy into, into that space or person. So that Friday, which was August 27th of 21, all day, you know, this lady's trying to pick a fight with me. Like I'm at work, you know, I work from home and just trying to, you know, poke here, poke there, not getting a response. Cause I'm like, yo, I'm done. I'm not going to waste the energy arguing with this person. And I know where it's going to go. Right. It's like talking to a wall. So nothing bought there, grab food, came back to the house. I had assignments to go do. And I'm trying to get to the office to go knock out my assignments. And I literally had just gotten off the phone with my neighbor. We're talking about gardening. I know it sounds lame, but you know, <laughs> we had just put like this, you know, hedge or stone fence in the garden to kind of make like a garden bed. And my neighbor saw it and they were all trying to get the same thing done. So we literally just had a conversation about that and, you know, what we're going to plant out there and how boss the garden's going to look. Yeah, I know. It's like uptown problems. But this is the mindset that I'm in, right? You know, and um, come into the house and, you know, she says to me, someone on the lines of, that I said to her that my father dying was the best thing that could have ever happened to him. I was like, what? You know, and it threw me off because one, I'd never say anything like that, you know, and then two, even if I did, I would never, ever mention it to her because, you know, we don't have that type of, you know, mm-hmm. intimacy. So I was just like, what are you talking about? And I guess when she realized that there was a reaction from that, that's when she kind of started to probe more. She's like, oh, I've got something to hook him now. And then she just started talking a bag of negative stuff about my father, who she didn't even know. She only saw him at the wedding. And I was just like, whoa, this is disrespectful like you should respect the dead like he's not even buried yet and you never know this guy you know why would you make these types of comments but it was all a ploy you know for what's to come so she keeps saying weird stuff like what are you gonna do you're gonna you know hit me and hurt me and I was like no because I've learned in arguments because of her violent reactions stay across the room <laughs> right and and dodge things and don't go near her I was like, of course not. And then she goes, I'm a firearm holder. She goes, oh, wait, you have your gun. What are you going to do? Shoot me? And I was just like, this is dumb. Like, why would I want anything bad to happen to you? 
because how the situation is, she has custody of kiddo. I don't, you know, and that was part of the whole court agreement. So if anything were to happen to a parent, it would need to be me because, you know, then kiddo wouldn't be negatively impacted. But if something happened to her, kiddo would go back to her dad, you know, and that might not have been a situation that kiddo wanted to do. So so long and short of that, I'm like, this makes no sense. I have no desire to hurt you. And, you know, what would be the point of doing that? And in my head, I was just like, well, that would put me in a bad position in the divorce anyway. <laughs> like, I'm processing all these things to show you, like, how calm I am and I'm trying to figure it out. So then she opens the front door and announces to the neighbors that I'm hitting and hurting her. So I'm like, what? <laughs> what is going on here? So I'm like, this has now escalated. So I call the police. And I'm just like, hey, you know, my wife is over here seeing that I'm hitting and hurting her. Can you please send somebody over to investigate? Right? Because I'm full, fully transparent, nothing to hide. The cameras are on, like, I don't say any way, right? And then the other thing was, this wasn't the first time she had done it. She had done it at another house where I'd lived at previously. And same thing. She made the allegation. I called the police. They came out, investigated. They're like, nothing happened. You know, they gave the report number and stuff, which I have a copy of. And that was the end of that. So when I call them this time, I'm not expecting a different result because I haven't done anything. So they show up. I'm still keeping, you know, significant distance, you know. So I'm at the front of the house. She's at the back. I have my driver's license in hand, my firearm license in hand. And I mean, to get the firearm license, you have to go through like, you know, FBI background checks, all of that stuff. I've worked in aviation for 18 years. I'm a pilot. Like, you can't have anything on your record, right? So I'm at the door just waiting for a couple of reasons. One, I want the neighbors to all see what's happening. And I'm at the door, nowhere near her. And then two, I want the police to be walk up on a, a situation where they don't feel threatened, right? Because this is the whole thing of, you know, being black in America. So I'm at the door and I, I meet them with these two things to show them that, hey, you know, I'm one of the good guys. Like you wouldn't have given me a firearm license had we not done the due diligence, right? So I start explaining what's happening. I'm like, hey, you know, this is not the first time. I'm just trying to like get through this rough season of my life. And this lady's here is calling, causing stress. You know, she's not supposed to be here. You know, I don't know what the outcome is, but one party would have to leave that night. If it's me, then that's fine. I'm going to like pack my stuff, but I just wanted an independent third party there to kind of like make sure that nothing crazy went down. So... One officer is talking to me, other one's talking to her in the back. I don't know what's going on. Cameras are still on. You know, I'm not worried. You know, me and the police guy, we start blowing smoke, you know, talking about sports, et cetera. And, you know, because I'm waiting for like a resolution. And then he goes, sir, can you put your hand on top of your head? So I'm like, yeah, sure. No problem. Put my hand on top of my head. And then I hear click around my hands. And I was just like, Sir, you just handcuffed me. I don't understand what happened. He's like, oh, well, you know, we've got to take you to the the police station. I guess in my mind, I imagined like questioning or to, you know, further diffuse the situation, etc. Something that affects, you know, that's what you get when you watch like police shows on TV. So, you know, I was just like, well, can you explain to me like why you're detaining me or putting me in handcuffs? He's like, oh, you know, your wife was offended. And I was like, offended? I don't get that. Like, 
I was offended, which is why I called you guys. But he's like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. You know, it's kind of like a, a traffic ticket, you know. And because I asked him, I'm like, wait, what's happening? This is like something going on my record. I don't know what's going on here. He's like, oh, no, nothing like that. It's, it's not a big deal. You're not going to be negatively impacted. And I remember saying to him, I'm like, sir, traffic tickets don't normally come with handcuffs. So I don't know, really know what you're <laughs> trying to, to say here. But I've watched enough news to just like, no, not to argue with the police. Just go with them, comply, and complain later, right? So we end up at the station. But it turns out it's not like the station. It's a police station, but it's also a jail, right? And they're trying to like give me this orange jumpsuit to wear. Ironically, I'm in orange today. It's not as nice a sweater as this. <laughs> it's literally an orange jumpsuit. I'm just like, what is happening here? I'm not putting that on. Like, I haven't done anything. What are you guys trying to do? You know, I think in my mind, I'm there to like, you know, give for additional statements. So finally, I'm just like, look, I don't know what you guys are doing. This is crazy. Let me talk to the manager, supervisor, whoever is in charge. So that person comes out and they're just like, look, man, I don't know what's going on, but you're here and the state of Texas, the law says that we can detain you for up to 72 hours, no charge. So I was like, what? So he's like, you may want to choose your next words very carefully, <laughs> basically, and just comply. Pretty much implying that, you know, shut up and get in there. We could literally keep you here for three days and just not have anything to charge you with for fun. And I was like, oh, good to know. I'll complain later. <laughs> I'll comply now and complain later. So they put me in there and I'm still in like shock. I'm like, what the heck is going on? It's now almost midnight. My attorney's asleep. All my friends, et cetera, are asleep. Like nobody knows I'm in this place except, you know, a buddy of mine that I'd called to say, hey, you know, I had to call the police again because, you know, my ex is doing weird stuff. So fast forward, it's maybe now three o'clock in the morning. An officer shows up, the arresting officer that was also at the house. And she comes and she takes pictures of my face, pictures of my hands. And I'm just like, is somebody going to say to me, like, what's going on? And she goes, your wife had a bruise and she said, you put it there. So I said, a bruise? A bruise how? Where? You know, like, that doesn't make sense to me. Because if I'm over here and she's over here, then I don't see how that happens. But anyhow, my thing to her was, so I say, is somebody going to take a statement from me and, like, talk to me about what happened? And she's like, oh, yeah, sure. So, you know, on TV, they have, like, the two people sitting in the room, like, the you know, the alleged person with allegation and then like the detective or whoever on the other side of the table. That doesn't happen in real life. The lady pretty much left me two sheets of paper and a pen and said, write your statement. So, so at two o'clock in the morning, it was pretty much saying to me, nobody's going to read that. We don't care. You're stuck in jail. So I wrote the statement and just stood there, just waiting because I'm waiting now for like somebody to realize that this is all craziness. And I realized nobody was doing anything on my behalf. You know, I eventually got tired of standing. It was like six or seven hours in. And there's like a little concrete bed thing. And I have a bad back. So it's very, how I sleep is important because if not, like literally in the next day, I'll be in pain. I remember asking these guys, I'm like, hey, you know, this thing is really cold and hard. Can I have like one of those Christian things? And there's literally like a stack of 20 of these things right in front of them. And I was just like, they were just like, no, 
So I was just like, hey, you know, like I have this injury, et cetera, et cetera. I'm asking for a special accommodation here. And they're just like, tough luck, basically. And I remember asking them like five times. I said, just to make sure I've asked for, I've asked for this accommodation and you're denying me. So I was just like, all right, fine. And at that point is when I started my whole documentation process of like what's happening in the prison system and all of that fun stuff. So then they take you from the station the next day to like a bigger jail, you know, and this is all foreign to me. So I'm just having to go with it. In the morning, I was able to find a friend who was on the East Coast. They were our head of Texas. So they were actually up. So I was just like, hey, you know, here's my attorney's number. Here's where I'm at. I don't know what's going on, but this is what they've told me. And help, you know, call these people. They're local. You know, they can be hands and feet on the ground. It was weird because now my friends are having to Google, like, how to get somebody out of jail. <laughs> you know, like, none of us have gone through this stuff Something before. Something that you don't think you're ever going to need to know. Exactly. So they take me to this bigger facility. And just to kind of describe what that looked like. So this is in the height of COVID, right? I don't know if you know those vans. Like if you have like a runaway animal or like a stray dog or something that they're kind of capturing to take to the, you know, the vet shelter or whatever. Picture one of those vans. They're transporting humans in that. And there are like 10 people in this van handcuffed to each other, you know, in the middle of COVID, masks are optional. I, I asked for a mask. I mean, I don't think it would have mattered if you were that close anyway. And that's what they're transporting people in. Like, it's not bigger than like a, a Sequoia or a, a Chevy Suburban. And I was just like, you're putting 10 grown men in here? This is crazy. But anyhow, I get to this facility and there's that, you know, intake process. So you do like a medical, et cetera, et cetera. They gave me a criminal ID. I was like, what the hell is this? So you like literally get an ID card with a number and your picture on it. I'm, my mind is still like blown through this process. It's all yeah. surreal. And I'm just like, what? So anyhow, there's, there's like no recourse because there's no voice. Like you're pretty much on this conveyor belt and it's just going slowly and doing its thing. So now we end up in this you know, holding facility and it's like a big room. It's a cell, but it's a big room. And there are probably like 20, 25 guys in there, you know, in COVID. Nobody has masks, no whatever. There's one toilet which is not working. And it's an open toilet. So like, it's not like it has a cover or lid that you can close. And then there's a water fountain. So picture your toilet tank where you flush. You know, there's like that lid on top where people put like flowers on or books on or air freshener, whatever. Think of that portion being a water cooler. So we're just like, wait, here's this open toilet. And then you're now supposed to drink water from that water cooler that's a part of the toilet. I was just like. Yes. So conditions, conditions are grim here. So visualize. Thank you so much, Marcus. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's early, but this is this is like real. This is hardcore stuff. So yeah, went through that whole process, and I'm just like in awe, you know, so and shocked. How long does it actually take you to actually get some answers for someone to tell you what what are you being charged with? Like we're at day two now, right? So we're probably yeah. we're now, next day, so we're almost at you know twelve eight eighteen hours here. 
when do you get to know what's been going on? Right. So in my criminal ID picture taking process, I was just like, I still don't understand why I'm here. And the lady was just like, you're being charged with, what is it called? Assault with bodily injury, family violence. I'm like, what? What is that? What does that even mean? And, you know, it went back to where the officer said, you know, my wife or ex had, you know, said had a bruise and I put it there. And I was just like, this is crazy because had they told me that from the front end, like the very beginning, I'd have just said, check the cameras. Here's the footage on my phone, right? And they'd have seen everything, right? So now I'm on this conveyor belt going through it. And the next step is where you're supposed to see a judge and the judge tells you what your charge is and then also what your bail is, right? So we get to the judge and he's like, hey, you know, you've been charged with this and you're supposed to keep this much distance from you and the other person. And I'm like, that's totally fine. <laughs> I never have to be around this person again for the rest of my life. That's great. And your bail or bond is a thousand bucks or whatever. So I was just like, that's a lot of money. You know, I mean, in my head, I'm like, I haven't done anything, but I'm now have to go, gonna pay a thousand bucks just to get out of this place. But I would have paid a million dollars to get out of that place. So it wouldn't have mattered. Yeah. And you're fortunate to be in a situation where you had the money. Yeah. So I tell my friends, what's up? Like, hey, you know, they want a thousand bucks. Like, just pay it. You know, the money's in the account. I'll pay you back, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, all right, sure, no problem. We're getting you out of there. And from the moment where the bail amount was paid to when I actually got out was probably about 16 hours. So I spent another night there. While being there, it was crazy. Like, I told you about the sanitary conditions. And after you leave that big cell, you now go to a smaller cell, right? And, you know, that was another check-in process, which was weird. And I was just like, so, hey, are we going to get a chance to shower or whatever? Because I've now been in this place, like, two nights, basically. And they're like, no, showers are at XYZ time. You're out of luck. So I was just like, yeah, but this is a situation. Are you denying us the right to shower? And they're like, there are no rights in here. Tough luck. So... For the time that I was in there, I didn't shower, right? I sure as heck wasn't drinking that water, right, from the toilet. I didn't eat because what they were serving was ham sandwiches for, like, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And the ham sandwiches were made by prisoners. And I was just like, this is COVID. I don't know where that food's coming from. And I don't know where this, you know, inmate has been doing with his hands. I'm not eating that. I remember saying to the guard... Prison is a billion with a B, you know, industry. And you're serving ham sandwiches for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And he's like, yeah, what's wrong with that? And I was just like, would you feed your child ham sandwiches for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And then he kind of got it and realized that, you know, this wasn't a nutritious meal that they're feeding to these grown men, right? That they're making a ton of money off by being there. So anyhow, fast forward, all of that goes down. I'm, I know that my thing is in process, right, for me to get released. I'm literally just standing at the window watching just when the phone rings for them to say, Mr. Hale, you're released. And I remember being there, the smaller cell that we had been in, I want you to imagine like a 11 by 10 room, you know, which is the size of like a typical guest bedroom. And there's six guys in there, six sharing that space. 
same open toilet, right? Same water fountain at the top of the toilet. There is zero privacy. This is COVID, right? There are no masks, et cetera, provided. A couple of days before that same cell, somebody tested positive for COVID. Yet they didn't even come and clean it or whatever. They just took the person out and quarantined them. And I'm just like, what the hell is going on? So anyhow, I'm there. And in this very, very dark space, there is no knowing when it's like night or day because lights are on all the time. So you don't know when it's time to go to bed. You don't know when it's time to wake up. It's just there. It's like being in a casino at Las Vegas. Yeah. But yeah. definitely not a minus, minus the fun. Right? Minus the minus. fun. Okay. Yeah. So long time until you actually finally get out. So you're finally out. Your friends bail you out. You get out. Now what? Well, I want to get to that, but I want to talk about, as I talked about the darkness, there's this one glimmer, couple glimmers of light. I think the guys in there recognize that I was stuck out like a sore thumb, right? And when I talked to them to kind of hear like what was going on and their own experiences, a lot of them had experiences similar to mine. You know, hey, you know, my girlfriend punched me. I defended myself, you know, maybe pushed her back to kind of escape the situation. And then I got arrested. Or, hey, here are the scratches my girlfriend or bruises from my girlfriend's injury, you know, but I got arrested. And I was just like, huh, this is weird. But anyway, long and short of it is they were actually very kind to me in there, you know, in terms of like, because we all have this common goal of like trying to get out, right? And they're just like, here's what happens. Here's what you can expect, et cetera, et cetera. Here's what to do next, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other glimmer of hope was as I was standing by the window, looking out and watching the phone in this weird dark place where there's no books, no anything written on the windowsill were two Bible verses, you know, totally random. But one of them was along the lines of, you know, don't put your faith in like worldly positions, et cetera, et cetera. Just lean on me, God, and I'll get you through it. And I was just like, wow. In that time and space, I really needed that, you know? And the other one was just about, like, pretty much along the lines of, I got you back. We're going to guide you through this thing. And that, for me, was just a revelation that even though I was in this, you know, toilet, basically, you know, like, God was still present and reached out his hand to, like, pull me out of that. And so that gave me hope. And I remember when I was leaving, or I got out, I said to the guys, I'm going to share your story, you know, and I'm going to not forget you guys. I'm going to remember your kindness and I'm going to fight for you guys because what's happening to you all is wrong. That kind of prompted, you know, a prison ministry that we've kind of started up and spun up. But to answer your question further, as we got out of that space, so I get out now, you know, I was just happy to see the sun. And, you know, the first thing you want to do is shower because it's been like three days. You know, never care about food at this point. I never, one, I did not know I could stay awake for three days. I didn't know it was humanly possible. The water portion I was concerned about because I'm now like dehydrated, you know, and then not showering was also a concern, not eating. So I get out and immediately want to shower and just get that mess off of me. Yeah. And then, you know, eat. I'm trying to get my cell phone because my cell phone has a camera footage, which would have put all of this stuff to bed. So it turns out my cell phone is confiscated for evidence. So I was like, all right, that makes sense. So I go get a new cell phone and I log into the camera app. And then I realized that 
wait, there's like 11 minutes of footage deleted from the cameras all around the time of when I got off the phone with my neighbor talking about gardening to when I called the police. And I was just like, what the heck? So fast forward, like a day or two later, I then get served with divorce papers, right? To say, because of this domestic violence incident on you know, August 27th, we are filing for divorce and we want a disproportionate share of the marital estate because there was violence, adultery, and cruelty in the relationship. You know? And because of that, you're going to pay all our bills for the next whenever, whatever. I mean, crazy stuff. So I was just like, what? So in my head now, I'm just like, is this what she really wanted? You know, was it just an attempt to try and get more of the marital estate? I was just like, you could have just asked me. I'd probably given it to you, you know, without having to go through all the stress and drama, you know. And I was just like, man, that's kind of weird. So anyhow, I'm now frantically trying to find a, a criminal attorney because that's my priority, like clearing my name. Yeah. Clearing, clearing my record, et cetera, et cetera. The divorce I already knew was going to happen. I wasn't too concerned about that stuff, but it was concerning what was said in that document. And I started, I immediately called her ex, which is her kid's father, because he had warned me. And he said to me, be careful because you don't know who so-and-so is. You know, they had a bad breakup. And I never really got into it, what he meant by that. So I called him, you know, like the day after, and I said to him, hey, when you and this person broke up, talk me through that. And he said, you don't know them. Talk me through that. And he literally described to me the exact same situation that I was going through. Showed up at his house unannounced, fake allegations about he was harming her. He left the house because he's a surgeon. So, I mean, similar to me, you can't have, afford to have anything like that on your record nor would you want to, right? And he had to live at his parents' house for like a year before she left. So I was just like, dude, how could you not tell me this? You know, he's like, well, it's not something that you really broadcast, you know? So we kind of had that moment of like, you know, understanding like, wow, there's this thing that we have in common. And uh, so since then, it's been pretty crazy as it relates to getting rid of the criminal stuff, which were all dismissed. They investigated everything. They didn't find anything. So that was dismissed. My record being expunged, what that is, is basically, even though your charge is dismissed, there is still the arrest on your record, right? And that sticks unless you get it expunged. So what that expunction does, it totally removes the arrest from your record so that if someone were to ask, well, have you ever been arrested? You can 100% confidently say, no. no, I have not. Yeah. So that portion's, you know, pretty much done. And then it's we've been fighting the whole divorce portion. And just kind of understanding how the system works in Texas. And it's a it's a bigger problem than just my situation. But essentially it's it's very imbalanced, you know. I'm I'm now living the consequences of that. So just again, I'll give give a bit more context as to some of the impact. So I've literally been out of my home displaced for 400 plus days, right? I've not been back to the house. My personal belongings are still in the house, et cetera. Like family heirlooms, you know, 
clothing, I do taxes, so client tax supplements, my pilot stuff, logbook, all that stuff, still in the house. She refuses to give them back, even with a court order. Even just going through the process, what I found out in all of this is that she wanted the house, right? And if you Google how to get my spouse out of the house, this scenario will come up. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, right? So then when I finally started talking to different players, and even my family was calling me and telling me what was being said to them, that's when I started understanding what was truly happening. It was all about getting the marital home, getting me out of it, and still having me paying the bills for it while she lived there. And now, because that situation has been in, in flight, there's no incentive for her to get divorced, right? Even though I'm an, a quote-unquote abusive husband, she's just milking it, basically. So the divorce case has been pushed out like six months. So we're now into about a year and a half, basically. And trial is in March. So we still got like another five, four or five months to go. And all this time, I'm literally having to incur these expenses and just walk this thing out. And it's been crazy. The grace of God has like, you know, allowed me to be able to survive to do this, but it's like rough. So long and short of it, what I just like to, to state, and then I'll reiter reiterate later, is that sometimes we look at people in jail and we think that, oh yeah, you know, they deserve to be there, et cetera, et cetera. They've done something wrong. And I think my experience really showed me the opposite. It showed me that there's discrimination, there's profiling, even though Blacks, Hispanics, you know, Caucasians, they're pulled over about the same amount of times, you know, on a traffic stop. Blacks are taken to jail four times more than the other groups, right? And um, once they get there, like, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter how much community service you've done. It doesn't matter if you've worked with the mayors, et cetera, like in my case, or worked with the city council. You're just another black guy in jail in an orange jumpsuit, and you're treated accordingly. The whole thing about being innocent until proven guilty, that's not a, a real statement either. You are literally treated guilty, until proven innocent. And as I was like, wow, you know, growing up in the islands, when you look at America and you think about like, you know, justice and fairness, that's what they show you on TV, but that, that's not what's actually happening. And yeah, it's it's been emotionally challenging. Like, you know, I've been going to counseling just to like keep yeah, saying. This, um, this, this is a big T trauma for you, definitely, Marcus. Yeah. The church has been pretty involved as it relates to like just being there as a resource and kind of guiding and coaching. So I'm super thankful for that. My friends and family, they've been amazing, super supportive. We've kind of all rallied together. And, you know, my big thing is I want the truth out, you know, and hence, you know, we're kind of having a conversation today. And one of the, the caveats to this, which is just like God turns all bad things into good. So coming out of this stuff, as I, I promised those guys that I would fight for them and just kind of like be an advocate against the system. Because there's a saying, you know, it's about Esther, where she was in this palace and, you know, they wanted to kill all of Israel, you know, just because they didn't like them. 
but she had the ear of the king, right? Because she was his wife. And it was the scenarios either be killed because she was a Jew or advocate to the king. And there's a saying in there where they said to her, you have been appointed or put in this position for such a time as this, right? Like God put you here because he knew that you would be the voice and the advocate to do something about this. So that spun off into what I mentioned earlier, the prison ministry that we launched is called Project 611, which is based off Isaiah 611, which talks about, you know, he came to set the captives free. You know, and it talks about like the whole prisoner experience and et cetera. And what I found in this whole scenario is that God actually has a heart for prisoners. And if you look at some of the heavy hitters in the Bible, like Jesus was in prison, falsely accused, John the Baptist, Paul, you know, Joseph, I mean, Moses, like a lot of these heavy hitters all had some experience with the quote-unquote justice system. But they came out and they kicked butt, right? And they represented God and they did amazing things. And I just realized that that's kind of my story too. So what that whole endeavor looks like is we're trying to tackle three things where there's the pre-going to jail, there's a during-going to jail, and then there's the after. And what that looks like is part of its education, the pre so stuff like this, we're like, hey, here's what happened to me. And this, this can happen to you. To you, so be exactly. aware. Awareness, Here, right? Exactly. Yeah. Here are some precautions you can take. Here's what to do if this happens. Here's what not to say, et cetera, et cetera. And so here's that some portion. supports after to help you get through cleaning up your name, cleaning up your record, finding a place to live, dealing yeah. with all of the things that may come from now having been falsely accused exactly and just not being prepared for it right because literally how the situation could play out in my head somebody could be walking down the street they twist their ankle you're walking in the other direction down the same street they could literally say that you did it right and if there are no witnesses they still are going to arrest you because there's a bruise nobody knows how the bruise got there and they lean on the side of caution and then once you get on that conveyor belt, no you kind of heard. Yeah. So. Wow. Oh my goodness, Marcus. First off, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this story because it's so important to be told. And it's that education piece. As you said, people are completely unaware of how often this situation unfolds for people. Right. So uh, thank you for doing that. And I just want to acknowledge you for having this very traumatic experience in your life be the thing to inspire you to do something about it. Not just for yourself, because now you're somewhat in the clear, right? Your, your record's been expunged, you know, all of that stuff, you know, the divorce to be confirmed, to be, you know, determined. But for the most part, you did get out of this somewhat unscathed you know, permanent, well, <laughs> somewhat, that's why I said somewhat yeah. unscathed permanently to help other people who may not have the means or may not have the ability to actually be able to clean up the mess that somebody else put them in because that has lifelong repercussions. It does. And what's scary, you know, I'm a sample of one, but there's so many others. If you don't mind, I, I kind of just love to share this. Yeah, we got some a couple highlights. minutes left. Yeah, give me some, yeah. give me some highlights. Give me some highlights. 
So this isn't just a Marcus problem. This is a, a Texas and a U.S. problem, right? So in, in the U.S. alone, they have the highest number of people incarcerated in the world, right? So there are 2 million people in jail in the U.S. Now, to give you context as to what that looks like, so that's like, think of the entire population of the city of Phoenix or San Antonio, or in the case of our Canadian neighbors, think of the population of Montreal or Calgary and Ottawa combined. In jail, exactly. Now, mind you, I'm going to give you another example. The U.S. is a, a free democratic state, right? China, communist state, has a population that's five times the size of the U.S., right? Guess how many people China has in jail? Significantly less. 1.7 million people. And this is China. This is not like I'm going to Disneyland in China. This is China like we'll lock you up for anything type China. So there's a big disparity there. So it's a national problem in the U.S. It gets even more aggravated in Texas. So I'll give you some more talking points. So there's what we call, if there are a thousand people in Texas, eight of them are in jail, right? The U.S. natural average is six. So Texas as a state has exceeded the U.S. national average of people incarcerated, right? At further context, so I said Texas is eight out of a thousand. The UK is one out of a thousand. France, one out of a thousand. Same for Belgium, Italy, et cetera. If you take all the founding NATO countries and combine their incarceration rates, Texas still exceeds that. It's crazy. So I was just like, what is going on? Who's getting incarcerated and why? So I look at the, the population in jail. And it's a fair split between Hispanic, whites, and blacks, right? So 33% across the board. So in my head, I'm just like, oh, equal opportunity imprisonment, right? But that's not the case. Yeah. Population of Texas is only 12% black. So even though blacks are 12% of the population, they're incarcerated at four times the amount of, you know, Hispanics and whites. And I'm just like, this is crazy. So I'm like, wait, what's going on here? Is it that black people are committing more crimes? It doesn't make sense to me. No, there's a system designed and mindsets, right? And this law that allows them to lock people up for 72 hours, no charge, negatively impacts people. And whereas, you know, I might be fortunate to have the resources to fight this stuff. There are people there that couldn't find $500 for bail. Right. I heard one guy saying, hey, you know, I have $80 in this account. Can you lend me 50? You know, this other auntie called. Can you lend me another 50? He still didn't get to the 500. So that guy literally has to stay in jail and wait until he gets a hearing. And even in my case, my arrest happened in August. My first court date was until like November. So imagine sitting in jail all that time, eating freaking ham sandwiches. Right. It's, it's crazy. So the other thing I found out, and I, I want to share this because there's a, a reason to this. It's all about following the money, right? So what I found out is that Texas has a very big spend on the, what do you call it? TC, the Department of Criminal Justice. So that budget is like $3.6 billion, billion with a B, right? That has grown significantly year over year. So what's happened is that Education spending in Texas has gone down. Healthcare service spending has gone down. 
the pensions, et cetera, has gone down. All of the important stuff, parks and recreation, transportation, all reduced year over year. You know who spending went up? By almost, by $158 million, prison. Corrections. Yeah. And I was just like, somebody is benefiting from having people locked up. And I haven't figured out who yet, but I am. I just wanted to raise that as like, this is a U.S. problem, you know, and it's an even bigger problem in Texas. And the, the disparity is huge. So my goal is to just really like, just share, like, hey, this is where your tax dollars are going. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what could happen to you regardless of who you are. And, you know, here's how you get out of that. Wow. Oh, my goodness. It's, it is eye-opening for sure. And, and more eyes need to be on it so that something, anything can start being done to correct it and, and break, break the current system, wash it away because that it's, it's not about fixing it because there is no fixing that, that, that needs to be just completely ripped apart and, 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 and start fresh. So Thank you for all that data. That's like really important stuff for a lot of people to know. So my question now, as we we wrap up this episode, tell us a little bit more, just like highlights about your ministry. Where can people find you? If people want more information, if people want to get involved, if people want to, you know, join this, this fight with you and, and help, where can people find you? What, where should they uh, look you up? Right. So for now, it's called Project 611. Okay. And it's based out of one community church. If you go to the website, you'll find us there. We're actually looking to get a, a page published because it's, mm-hmm. it's so many tenants, right? And like I mentioned, some of the stuff we do, it's the pre-jail, during jail, and the after. Mm-hmm. And the pre is like education, you know, expunction, et cetera. If you're in jail, then we actually ha- allow you to do courses, you know, self-development, kind of steering you towards God to kind of recognize that, hey, you know, there is a better way and there's light at the end of the tunnel. And also prepping you for life when you leave, right? Mm-hmm. And then on the post stuff, there's like support in terms of, hey, when I get out of jail, I don't have any money. I don't have any clothes. I don't have a cell phone. I've been in here for five years. I don't know where or how to get a bus, how to get a job. I don't have a computer. So providing that type of support. And then some other pillars are there's a legislative slide side where we actually want to go lobby to Congress and say, hey, this is what's going on in Texas. Here's where the money is going. You know, this story could be yours. How are we going to change the law to affect it? So that's kind of what we're doing. If you want to reach out to me directly, email is the best way, marcushale at hotmail.com. I have a website as well, marcushale.com. And um, connect with me on LinkedIn. So we're still in the building stage. Like some tenants are fully up and running, but I think there's an opportunity to do more because there's so much help needed. Right. Absolutely. Well, with those kind of numbers, there is a lot of help needed because the, I'm still I'm still a little shell shocked over the numbers, to be honest with you, of what you just shared, because that is a huge, huge, huge number. Thank you, Marcus, for coming on the show and sharing your story. I appreciate you so much. And I'm praying for you, my friend, that I'll get settled now with the divorce. You know, when this episode airs, I'm hopefully that's past that March date and you have some really good news to share as to how, and getting back into your house, getting back into your home and, you know, having your things 
I know that seems like such a small thing right now in the in the big picture, but you know, you're you're displaced. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And definitely prayers are always welcome. It is a lot. I mean, I think going through the system was a lot. This beast that I'm tackling is ginormous. Yeah. Right. And it's been tackled multiple times before. But I think in this instance, God is so fed up. He's like, this needs to stop. You know, let my people go. The, the, the encouragement to me is there's a story in the Bible where Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And then he eventually became like second in command in Egypt. And his brothers came and they were just like, they thought he was going to like hang them or something. And he said, you guys didn't put me here. God put me here because God knew that he was going to use me to save people. You know, and save not just Egypt, but also the nation of Israel. So when I look at it, I'm just like, yeah, this drama happened, but it happened to me because I have a big mouth. And I also have the willingness and the relationships to go engage people and speak and advocate on their behalf. So yeah, did it suck? Yes, 150%. Yeah. But it's ignited a fire which only he could put there. Like, if you had told me like a year ago that I'd be doing prison ministry, I'd be like, ha ha, never happening. (laughs) But yeah, that that drive and desire is there. And, you know, I would just encourage the audience to like, let's get this right. You know, it's the the right thing to do. And we have the opportunity to do it by by how we vote, you know, by how we treat people, by how we look at people, you know, when they get out of jail. Yeah, I would just say, just follow, follow the data you know, which I'm happy to share. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. Okay, guys, that is it for us this week for another episode of I Just Blank Now What? Thanks, Marcus, for joining me. If this episode resonated with you, please give it a like, a share. If you want to help Marcus get his story out there to the world, share this episode. And if you know anybody who could possibly be going through something similar or something, you know, a situation like this, please share this episode. It could help them figure out their own now. That's it for us. And if you're a Patreon, hang on. We head over to patreon.com slash backslash. I just blanked now what? I'm going to expand my conversation with Marcus a little bit. We're going to get into a little bit more details. So if you want to learn more, head over there and check us out. All right, Marcus, that's it for us today. Thanks so much, buddy. We'll talk real soon. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it more than I can say. Did you love this episode of I Just Blank Now What? If you did, be sure to subscribe on your fave podcast platform. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. I do love reading them. And if you know somebody who's experiencing this story or something similar, please share this episode with them. It just might help them figure out the answers to their own now what questions. Have you recently had a now what moment and aren't sure what to do? Reach out to me at jessicastevens.ca and submit your story and I'll help you figure out what to do, how to move forward and help you answer now what. See you on the next episode.